Between our Old Testament gospel reading and the passage in Romans, this morning feels a little like the Bible's greatest hits. Famous, probably at least partially memorized passages for many of us. And the text that's our focus this morning is Romans 3. And it was actually declared by Martin Luther to be the chief point, the very central place of Romans and of the whole Bible. And this passage in Romans 3, it includes some of the most debated terms or phrases that you could find among biblical scholars. Justification, works of the law, faith in Christ, the righteousness of God. Terms and phrases at the very center of knotted debates between what's called the new perspective on Paul and other older ways of reading Romans and Paul's writings. Terms and phrases with significant ramifications what we might call $10 words. And my strategy this morning as we come to hear from the living God through his word written by Paul is to sidestep all of that, avoid it for a little bit, and set our focus on two much more obscure phrases or terms, $1 words, we might say. One phrase, one term specifically. Easily ignored, but themselves very important. They are, but now, in verse 21, and the Greek preposition ek, translated as by, in our version here, in verses 20 and 30. But now and ek, or by. And I'd like to group our thinking around these two terms under two headings. First, the age of God's great gift, and second, the means by which we live. The age of God's great gift and the means by which we live. As we dive into this passage, let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for your spirit that inspired the writing of these words that caused Paul to apprehend the truth that is recorded here. And we ask now that that same spirit would work in and among us, would enliven our hearts and our minds to see the truth embedded in these words and to live in light of this truth more fully. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So first, but now in the age of God's great gift. In Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, one character famously asks another, how did you go bankrupt? Gradually, then suddenly is the answer. That famous bit of dialogue speaks so much to so much in human experience and to so much in history. The move from one era to the next happens often in this way, gradually, then all of a sudden. The rise of one world power is understood after the fact to be a long time coming, but at the moment it might seem like this drastic, cataclysmic thing. The fall of Rome in 1497, this decisive moment, but also a long time in coming. The Meiji Restoration in Japan, 1868 to 1912, these clear markers, but also part of what came before and after. You think of the atomic age ushered in in August of 1945, yet caught up with so much that had come before. The culmination of so much, yet also radically new, disjunctive. Continuity, but also change. Gradually, but also suddenly. The words, but now, which open verse 20, speak of both continuity and radical change. Like I said, these are words that we easily might read over. 
But in them, there is this decisive turning from one age to the next, from one epoch to another, from an age characterized by the wrath of God to one marked by his righteousness, from one characterized by the law to one defined by the gift, the gift of Jesus, from the era of sin to the day of salvation. Something new. But there's continuity as well. What has happened now has been testified to in the law and the prophets, Paul says. It's been anticipated. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, the phrase, but God, appears a number of times. It marks these happily disjunctive moments. Noah and his family in the midst of the flood, alone in the sea of judgment. But God remembers. Israel, the smallest of nations, with nothing to offer or boast in, no prospects. But the Lord loved her and kept his promises. The psalmist says, my flesh, my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion. These instances and others set out this pattern recorded in Scripture of God's active, gracious intervention in history. And he changes the trajectory of things where where death and sin seem to have the upper hand, where the walls are closing in. God intercedes and brings life and blessing. Some of you have stories like that. It's this pattern. And what Paul seems to be describing here for his readers and for us is a picture of how God has continued to act in this same way, interceding generously following the same pattern. But there's also a sense here of something new and singular. The righteousness of God has been revealed, Paul says. And the implication is in this unprecedented way, in such a way that would make us look at everything in a new light, look at God, look at creation, look at ourselves in a new light. Think of it like a series of beta tests and prototypes before the real, actual, finished product arrives. You've had it in pieces, you've glimpsed it, but now, something newer, fuller, better. In the lead up to Pentecost, we covered the first two chapters of Romans. And the somewhat repetitive, somewhat depressing emphasis in those weeks has been the absolute uniform situation of human helplessness and hopelessness under sin. Jew or Greek, law abider or law ignorant, the reality has been continually pressed upon us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That has been the defining reality of human experience, of human history. An entire age of failure, of sin's supremacy. Some of you have stories of that as well. But now. But in the present moment, Paul says, something has happened. Something is changed. The righteousness of God has been made known in this unique and singular way. In Jesus Christ, and specifically in his death upon the cross, in his sacrifice of atonement, something new has occurred. Do you remember when History used to be demarcated into the categories B.C. and A.D. You kind of have to be B.C. to remember that even. 
Those categories before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, they've been replaced, right, with BCE and CE, before the common era and common era. This is not an argument for keeping Christ in Christmas or something like that. But what Paul here is saying is that marking time, marking history, in light of Jesus, in light of his death upon the cross, is appropriate in this foundational kind of way. He's saying there is this decisive transition that occurred with Jesus, with the cross. I remember a few years ago talking with Brad Laws, a member of our community, and him telling me how he had to convince his middle school students that AD didn't mean after death. <laughs> and factually, those students are totally wrong. But theologically, they were onto something. In Jesus, in the cross, things are changed. The era of sin's power has come to an end. What's different, we might ask? God's righteousness, his justice, his pure goodness have been put on display like never before or since. Paul's contention here is that the law has revealed God's righteousness by outlining his holiness, his holy intentions and purposes. And that the story of Scripture thus far has included these various glimpses of God, of his character, his righteousness. Moses at the burning bush, the exodus itself, the raising up of kings, the raising up of prophets. All of that has given snippets, tastes of God's goodness, his righteousness. But now, Paul says, in Jesus, apart from the law, his righteousness, God's justice and goodness have been displayed in vivid color. Up to this point, it's all been black and white. But in Jesus, the righteousness of God has been rendered in high definition, made alive in this singular way, embodied in the flesh, in Jesus. Revealed through the cross, God's righteousness on display. And this is a key point of Romans 3. God's righteousness for us. Not simply displayed to be observed, not simply on, on show for us to see and consider. The law has revealed God's righteous intention, Paul says. God's just and good standard. But in Jesus, we see that righteousness actively moving toward us, toward you and me. The righteousness of God is shown to be for you, for me, in our sin, in our falling short, in our lack. This is God's great gift, history-changing, era-defining, the righteousness of God for the unrighteous. It's the gift of himself, his life, his righteousness for us in the flesh. Imagine, if you will, meeting someone online. They slide into your DMs, and they're charming and kind. They ask the right questions, they exhibit the right qualities, they eventually send a picture and they look pretty good. Soon enough, they're sending gifts, something that reveals their thoughtfulness, their care, and that they are flush, right? They've got resources. Everything is turning out good. It reveals aspects of their character, their suitability as a partner. But all of that pales in comparison to meeting them in the flesh, to their embodied presence to experiencing those qualities, their kindness, their generosity, their presence for you, with you, 
on your behalf. You would narrate this story in terms of before and after actually meeting them. According to Paul, thus far there have been witnesses of God's goodness. There have been glimpses of his righteousness. There have been rumors of his generosity. But now, with Jesus, with his death on the cross, the quality of that righteousness, the abundance of that generosity have been displayed, revealed in this full and complete way. God's great gift of Jesus, God's great gift of himself for you. How does that work? How is the gift for us? There are are two phrases that Paul uses that are important. In verse 25, there's this language, the phrase, the sacrifice of atonement. And this idea is related to the Old Testament, to Leviticus, and this idea of a mercy seat. Nick Cave has a great song called The Mercy Seat. Anne White knows what I'm talking about. And in that song, the mercy seat is the electric chair. It's the place of punishment for wrongdoing, of reckoning with what has been done. And that's fitting because the mercy seat was the location, the location of sacrifice in Israel's sacrificial system, of dealing with wrongdoing, reckoning with what had been done. It's where animals were presented as the remedy to deal with the reality of sin, the falling short of Israel. And this place, the mercy seat, became, it was the means by which God's people remained in covenant with him, despite their repeated failures, their congenital inability to walk in holiness. And the mercy seat became the the focal point of life with God, this symbol of the ways that he had provided for them, for their relationship with him. And the claim here in Romans 3 is that Jesus Christ has now become that means, the focal point of continued relationship with God. In Jesus, God has put himself on the mercy seat. In him, God has dealt with the wrongdoing. The reckoning has occurred in his body. In his death upon the cross, we see that God has dealt justly with our wrongdoing. He hasn't sloughed it off, but has shown his justice true. And in the gift of his death, he's revealed this great love for you such that he didn't allow the reality of your sin, your congenital inability to walk with him, to be an obstacle of life with him. In Jesus, he made up for our falling short. He provided fully, completely for our lack, the great gift of God. In verse 24, the the phrase is justified freely following immediately that crushing declaration that all have sinned. The quick, generous proclamation of God is free justification. In Jesus, God has acted to rectify your life, to rectify what is wrong in you and in me. And he has done so freely as an unconditioned gift, out of step with any sense of our worthiness, our worth of the gift. The gift of God's righteousness is not only on display, but is extended now in the present time to you, to me. And that, that reality, that gift, the reality of that gift is the defining fact, the foundational truth 
of human life today. This is the most important thing about your life. We live in the era of God's full and complete provision. We live in the age of Jesus Christ, God's love incarnate. Through the cross, the full display of God's righteousness has been made known. His justice, his desire for you and your flourishing have been revealed decisively in an undeniable way. All have sinned and fall short. But now, but now, we live in the happy age of his righteousness revealed, his goodness and justice displayed, the fullness of his life, love unveiled. That's the age of God's great gift. But what might it mean to live in light of God's righteousness revealed? What might it mean to receive his great gift? And this brings us to the second of those small but significant $1 words. The Greek preposition ek often carries with it, conveys a sense of means the means by which something is done, the means by which we might live. In the world of architecture, a cantilevered structure is one that extends out in space. A balcony or beam that extends out in defiance of gravity, it seems. And the means by which it is able to do so is its anchor point, its grounding, out from which it extends, a wall, a cliff face, something balanced on the other side. That's the idea here with ek. It's even where we get the language extending out. The word first appears in verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. The works of the law are a crummy means by which to be declared righteous. They're a faulty grounding for a life of righteousness. They don't work as an anchor point. The word also appears in verse 30 with reference to faith, the circumcised by faith. That is, those who are are brought into covenant relationship with God by the means of faith in Christ. When it comes to God's righteousness revealed in Jesus, when it comes to receiving the gift of his atoning sacrifice, faith is the effective means. If you'd like to live in the new era, In light of what Jesus has done, you must do so by faith. This key distinction in the thinking of Paul is between the works of the law and faith in Christ. And the main contrast there is in the final words, the law and Christ. The law, whatever benefit it provides, is not a means by which someone can be made right. To ground your being there on the law, Paul is saying, is to build on sinking sand. The law here clearly means Torah, the Jewish law. The works of the law are those practices of Torah, the kind of life that religious Jews would have seen as essential to receiving the gift of God's salvation, being declared worthy of that gift. We don't likely see the Torah as the ground of our being in the same way even the most pious of us. But all of us are tempted to see our practices, our efforts of living the good life as fundamental to who we are. 
We're all tempted to make what we do or don't do as paramount in our sense of ourselves, to root our worth, our sense of goodness, our sense of being enough or being okay here in what I've done or not done, to make measuring up to whatever standard as the, the dominant reality of life. And the claim of Romans 3, Paul's claim today, is that is fundamentally the wrong way to live your life at this moment in history, in this age. Rather than setting our actions or whatever standard as most integral as the, the grounding of our being, Paul's encouragement, Paul's charge is to live in light of God's gift of Jesus, gift of himself, gift of righteousness for the unrighteous. And to live in light of that is to make Christ, his work upon the cross, the basis of our lives, the basis of our sense of worth, our sense of being okay. It is to receive and trust that he has made right in us what is wrong and to live our lives by his grace in light of his atoning death, to make his gracious gift the ground upon which we stand. This is the difference between living life as a hustling and anxious earner and living life as a beloved recipient at rest. Think of the difference between someone bragging about what they own or what they've done and someone who celebrates all that they have received. Think of the difference in posture, in outlook, in spirit. Who is the better hang? Who is an insufferable boasting bore whose life reflects the righteousness, the goodness of God? Back in February, during the snowstorm, I was chatting with a member of our community, a woman whose family, like so many others, had been disrupted in major ways by the storm. No power and no water in their home for days, moved out with young kids, worried about COVID, sick and under the weather. In the course of the conversation and all that they were carrying, I asked, well, how's your husband? And she paused for a moment and said with real feeling, he is loving us so well. His care, his attentiveness had made this remarkable oppression on his wife. It was very cool to see. And I think that statement, he is loving us so well, is reflective of the kind of posture that Paul is encouraging here with regard to the gift of Jesus, the righteousness of God revealed in him. In Jesus, we see that God has loved us so well, such that he's not allowed our sinfulness, our lack, to remain an obstacle, such that he has revealed and extended the full measure of his goodness to us, rectifying what is wrong, and faith in Christ is to receive that great gift as the transforming, foundational thing that it is. It's to make his incredible love for us the dominant reality by which we live in defiance of sin and condemnation, anxiety and toil. It is to make the gift of his atoning sacrifice the foundation upon which our lives are constructed. And yes, to enter into the difficulties, the uncertainties, the sufferings of this life. To be confronted again and again by our sinfulness, 
our congenital inability, our falling short. All of that is real. All of that is real. But to see those, not deny them, and to remain rooted in the knowledge that he has loved us well, that he is loving us well, and to make that love the ground of our being, that is what it means to have faith in Christ. That is what it means to live in this new age. That is what it means to receive God's great gift. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.